Well, what a wonderful day today. So good to see everybody showing up in shorts. And I don't know if that's because of the park day or that's just how we come to church. But either way, that's awesome. I love that. And uh, looking forward to hanging out with everyone uh, today. Hey, I wanted to give you an update. Last week we prayed for Bobby and his uh, blood platelets were so low. I think he had like like 150 or 250 when you're supposed to have 150,000. And um, anyway, so by, by Sunday evening, his platelets were up to 700. By the next day, they were up to, uh, you know, 1,500. And just it's been going up, and he got up over 26,000, and they sent him home. And that was awesome, and he was planning on being here today. But what an amazing thing. It's like we prayed for him, and that just turned around. And, uh, but this morning, he was planning to be here, but he's headed back to the ER, so we're going to pray for him again. And uh, just, uh, man, what a, what a blessing uh, prayer is. And also, I'm just really thankful, too. You know, we have another lady in our church, uh, Sandy, who fell and broke her pelvis. And so we're praying for her, too. But it just has been so encouraging for me to see the way that people in this church love people and surround them and take care of them. And uh, what, a, what a privilege it is to be a part of this church family. So I'm just going to pray for us real quick again. It's not normally how I start my sermons. Not that that prayer is a bad thing, but uh, let's just pray for a minute about those too. Lord, thanks so much for Bobby and the tremendous gift. And Lord, just how we immediately see your hand at work. And we pray again that, that this would be, this trip to the hospital would be a good thing and that, uh, Lord, we'd see him come to full recovery and that they would figure out whatever's going on. And so we just ask for your hand of blessing and care on him. And Lord, we also just lift up Sandy and we're just so thankful for, um, for her and the blessing that she is to this church. And we pray that you would help her to heal God, thank you for, um, Lord, we know that there are many other needs in this church family too, and I just thank you for the people here that pray, and Lord, the, the way that this church family loves and cares for one another. And I pray that even as we think about important doctrinal issues this morning, that everything that we do would be motivated and driven by love, and Lord, that uh, we would have a full understanding of how much you love us, and that that understanding would help us pour out your grace and your love and your mercy on those around us. And so we ask that you'd bless our time this morning in your name. Amen. All right, so we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 again, verse 8 through 13. And um, one of the things that I love about this passage, it's a super important passage. It's very powerful. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 are, you know, there's a lot of things in the Bible that as, as we read them, they're actually not at all hard to understand. It's hard to accept what's being said, but it's not hard to understand. And, and there are tons of people who they approach the Bible and they see things in it and they don't like it, uh, even though it's obvious and it's clear. Um, this is one of those passages that I just have to say, like there's a lot of confusion around spiritual gifts uh, specifically these three chapters, there's a lot of confusion about it. And when I read these passages, I am not confused about why there's confusion. There's tough things. There, as you think it through, there, there are so many statements that are hard to weigh and, and to put together, and we need to all obviously do that within the context of all of Scripture. And so when it comes to things like this, we need to always approach these things with humility, but we also understand that Satan does two things to get us off track. You know, more than two, but the two things that he does is he tries to get us to see sinful things as good for us. He wants us to desire sin, the destruction of sin. That's what he did to Adam and Eve. 
cause them to question God and desire sin and to think sin's good for them. The other thing that Satan does, one of his main tools, is to get people to believe things that aren't true because we live out of our beliefs. Your beliefs inform what you do. And actually, if you think about your life, the things that you do are an expression of what you really believe. And so Satan wants us to believe things that aren't right. And so that's why it is so important for us as believers to read the Bible, to think about what God is, is saying. And this, this idea that we have in our culture, that we all read the, the Bible, and okay, there's 10 different interpretations, and, and those are all legitimate interpretations. And I just want everyone to know that there are no legitimate interpretations of anything other than the one that's right. God intends us to read the Bible, to understand it, and to believe the thing that's true. And so the idea that there are multiple interpretations that are okay is not true. And uh, it could be that good, faithful people believe different things. And we could say that is a good person who loves the Lord, and they believe something. Person A believes something than person B. And we can have people in this church where I love the Lord, and I believe something, and you love the Lord, and you believe something, and they're different. And that doesn't mean we're not Christians. But what it does mean is one of us is wrong. Um, we're not both right. And if you believe something that's inaccurate, that's harmful to you. If I believe things that aren't true, that is harmful to me. And so it is our job as Christians to believe the Bible, to read the Bible, to read it all, and to, and to do that actually with a spirit of humility where we say, you know what, I may love this or I may not like that, but whatever God says, that's where I'm going to land. And we do our best to get there. So anytime anybody says to you, yeah, there's two different views, they're both legitimate, that person's wrong. Like, we should never say that. We should always say we need to do our best to understand what God is saying and to believe that. And then we also approach that with humility, realizing that we don't always do that. Sometimes we do our best and we are wrong. And so... Um, as we look at this passage, we're going to see some good things. And one is it's important for us to believe the truth. You know, Paul in chapter 12, he opens it up by saying, when you were pagans, you were led astray. And uh, he starts chapter 12 by just saying, I want you to know about spiritual gifts. And so that's what he's doing in chapter 12. He actually is laying a foundation. He's not, he's not specifically addressing like the item that they're fighting over. He's laying a foundation about spiritual gifts in chapter 12, and he's just basically saying God's in charge. He gives gifts as he chooses, and um, everybody's gift is needed and valuable. So if you're looking at someone else and you think they're not needed or you think you're more important than them, you're wrong. You need them just as much as they need you. And if you're looking at yourself and this is one of the things that was happening in the Corinthians, is they all wanted to speak in tongues. And so they were looking at the gift that God gave them, and they were like, I don't really want this gift. I want that gift. And the Apostle Paul is saying, no, you are needed, and you are valuable. And there are some people that are up front, and they're prominent. They are not more important than the person who is quietly serving behind the scenes. So whatever Whoever God has made you and however He has blessed you, you are an important, needed part of the body of Christ. 
And so that's like kind of the foundation that he lays in chapter 12. And then he says, you need to desire the higher gifts. That's how he ends. And the higher gifts are the instructional gifts, the gifts in a sense that are actually focusing on God's revelation, God's truth, those gifts that help us understand how to think about life. And Paul says, emphasize those. But in the context of everything, he's saying that's really important, desire those higher gifts. You know what he's not saying? He's not saying those are the important gifts and anybody else is unimportant. He just spent the whole of chapter 12 saying that's not true. If, if your gift is unlocking the church door, you are not less important than the person who preaches on Sunday morning. You are not less needed. Uh, God's put us all together exactly how He has chosen. And that's the emphasis. And in our life, right, we're all supposed to say, God, who have you made me to be? I want to be that. God, where have you put me? I want to function where you put me. God, what is it that you have for me to do? I want to do what you have, ha what you have for me to do. That's actually worship and honoring God rightly. And when you look at our culture, what is wrong with our culture? Like even, you know, you get men who God made them a man, and they say, no, I wish I was a woman. I want to be a woman. In fact, I'm going to be a woman. Or you get a woman who God's made a woman, and they say, no, I wish I was a man. I want to be a man. And it's like in the basic things of creation, that's how rebellion against God is expressed. And, but it's actually not the only way rebellion against God is expressed. And sometimes we can look at stuff like that, and we can go, oh, oh that's bad. But then we are somebody else who shows up, and we just we did, we devalue another person in the body of Christ, or we don't function the way God tells us to function. And actually, we need to realize that those other big things are wrong, but then we need to bring that in and say, but even in the ways I rebel against God, that is just as wrong. And so we need to have that perspective. So Paul is emphasizing those foundational issues that God's in charge, that we love and value everybody. And then in verse chapter 13, he just emphasizes love, that, that love needs to be the thing that drives everything that we do. And that's the chapter we're in. And then in the next chapter, chapter 14, he's going to get into the specifics of the things that they were doing wrong, actually with the gift of tongues. And so we'll look at all that when we hit chapter 14. But for right now, we're going to fo focus on this quality that God says is really important and really good for every Christian, this whole thing of love and the fact that when we love people rightly, even when we're wrong, we're not going to be hurt by that as much because we're focused on love. And when somebody else is wrong, they are not going to be destroyed because of the ways that they're wrong because of the way we love each other. Like love makes up for, love covers a multitude of sins, right? Love makes up for those errors that we shouldn't have, but that we do have, right? We all do. So that's kind of where we're headed uh, this morning. And uh, basically, we're going to see uh, three things this morning. One we saw last week. Hopefully, we'll see two this week, but we'll see how that goes. And, uh, but basically, just to know this, that our gifts are temporary. And while our gifts are important, they are not an end in and of themselves. Uh, we're supposed to love and care for other people, and God gives us gifts to build up others. The second thing that we're going to focus on today, and that is um, the fact that we need to long for the full knowledge 
that we will have when we are in heaven, when we actually know everything and where nobody will be wrong about anything. We need to long for that, and we need to allow that to inform how we live and think about this world. And the final thing is that um, Paul gives us three qualities for man, perfect qualities for an imperfect world, and that is our faith, hope, and love. So we'll jump into that. Let me start by just reading our passage, and I'm going to skim through chapter 12 all the way through our passage today. But chapter 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 11, all of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Verse 24, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body and that the members may have the same care for one another. Verse 31, earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. That's love. And then he's going to talk about the value of that in verse th- chapter 13. Verse 1, if I speak in the tongue of men and angels but don't have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I have, give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. Okay, he's putting an exclamation point on love. And then he describes it. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And then where we started last week, verse 8, second part, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. I know in part, then I will be fully known. I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So that's our passage. We're going to jump in there and, and talk about some things that are controversial and make people mad at each other. So if, uh, if you think differently, I was thinking about that last week. I know some of these things that I'm teaching and some of the, some of the things that I've said, um, there are some people in this church family that that's not how they see it and they disagree with that. And the thing, one of the things I'm praying and thinking about is that, that if you have a different view, that that doesn't make you feel like, oh man, I don't belong here. I should go somewhere else or that you feel hurt or some, somehow looked down on or any of that stuff, but that we as a body of Christ can just say, you know, God is our authority, and we read His Word, and we submit to His Word, and, and whenever somebody's preaching and you disagree with them, you've got to read the Bible and say, 
are they saying what the Bible says? And if so, I should actually change what I believe. And, and if what they're saying doesn't match Scripture, then I should stick with Scripture. Like, that's what we're all supposed to do. But we can still love each other. You know, even if you're wrong, I love you. And even if I'm wrong, you love me, right? I mean, that's because we're, we're a Christian family. I should have said that the other way around, but, but it, was just, it was more fun to say it that way. So uh, God is love, you know, the, just the priority of love. God is love. Love is a mark of believers, and it's a commandment that God's given that summarizes the whole law. And then uh, the, from last week, we know that gifts are temporary, and while they're important, they are not an end in and of themselves. And just as, in case you weren't here, I'm going to summarize some of that. First of all, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge are super valuable. They're unbelievably valuable. And uh, Paul, by saying that these things are going to pass away, and he's saying they're not permanent, he is not devaluing any of them. They're all super important. Now, prophecy, that's to bring forth new revelation, and sometimes prophecy is proclaiming revelation. When you look at the Old Testament, um, often prophets were bringing forth new revelation, but a lot of the prophets, in fact, the minor and major prophets were actually preaching Deuteronomy, and they were preaching the books of Moses. And so a lot of their ministry was actually proclaiming and applying things that were already written. And when you read the New Testament, the New Testament, many, much of it is a sermon on the Old Testament. And so if you have Bibles that capitalizes the Old Testament, you just take Hebrews, for example, and as you go through, it's like there's capitals all over it. It's, it the New Testament's a sermon on the Old Testament, and uh, along with some new revelation. So prophecy is imp important, and God's Word is incredibly valuable. We focused on that. And it says that when the perfect comes, it's going to pass away. That's passive. Something's going to make it pass away. Tongues. The ability to speak a language that nobody has learned, that is an unbelievably valuable thing. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost where God started the church. As people preached, everybody heard it in their own language. Um, one of the things we'll emphasize in chapter 14, but that I do want to say here, is you know that the gift of tongues is actually a judgment on the nation of Israel, right? Um, God had, in the Old Testament, had been telling Israel, I keep speaking and you're not listening. And if you don't start listening, I'm going to speak in ways you don't understand. And actually, in Jesus' ministry, he told parables. And everybody's like, oh, Jesus was the master storyteller. Look, he told all these great stories for people who would understand. Except if you actually read what it says about parables, parables were written as a judgment against Israel. And, and Jesus would tell these stories, and people would hear it, and, and it actually says the purpose of a parable is so that people would hear and not understand. It's like, I was speaking plainly, and you didn't listen, so now I'm going to tell a story you won't understand. And then the disciples would later go to Jesus and say, hey, can you explain this to me? And he would explain it to them. Parables, hey, they are wonderful stories and illustrations when you get the illustration. But you just think about a lot of the parables. If you just read it, man, it could mean almost anything. And that was the point. And the gift of tongues was God saying, I have been speaking to you and you have not been listening. I'm not going to speak to you anymore. Now I'm speaking to the Gentiles. And you know, Jesus actually in his ministry, he pointed that out. And uh, some of the examples that he gave is he talked about the Sidonian widow 
um, and how she was a Gentile. And when Elijah was healing and raising people from the dead and healing lepers, he, he gives the illustration of Naaman. And he goes, there was tons of, of lepers in Israel that Elisha didn't heal, but he healed Naaman like this foreigner. And Jesus would talk about that foreshadowing um, the fact that God was going to set Israel aside because they're rejecting him and start working through the Gentiles. And by the way, when Jesus told those stories, the whole crowd rushed on him and tried to throw him off a mountain. That's how mad it made them. And uh, Paul, when he's preaching, actually this happens in um, Paul's ministry to Corinth. He goes to Corinth and he's ministering to the Jews in the synagogues, and they kept rejecting him. This is Acts chapter 18. They just keep rejecting him. And finally, Paul shakes the dust off his clothes, and he says, from now on, I go to the Gentiles. And tongues is a sign to Israel. You are being set aside. Now I'm going to speak and minister to and use the foreigners, the Gentiles. And uh, Paul talks about that in Romans 11, uh, Romans chapter um, 11, verse 11 through 16. He just says, I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles. You know, Paul was, Peter got sent to the Jews, Paul got sent to the Gentiles. And Paul's saying, I'm magnifying that ministry so that I'll make Israel jealous. So that they'll say, hey, wait a second, we're supposed to be the special people. And Paul's like, good, and then I hope you get your act together and that God will, will work in your life. So Paul's ministry, like even though he's ministering to the Gentiles, he doesn't forget about the Jews. And uh, in chapter 14, it actually quotes Isaiah, chapter 28, verse 11 and 12, where Paul says tongues is a sign of judgment on Israel. And so, um, one of the things I want to just emphasize today is that that is true like on a macro uh, level for the Gentiles, but I don't want us to miss the point of tongues. Um, tongues is a sign of judgment. The fact that it even existed was because Israel was given truth that they ignored. And I want to just think about that for a second for us. And I just want us to know that um, we need to understand that spiritual um, opportunity is not always going to exist. Um, sometimes God gives you the privilege to minister and to do ministry, and that is an incredible privilege. And there's people who have an opportunity to minister, and they devalue it. They don't say, I want to live a holy, faithful, righteous life, and I'm going to fully pursue the ministry that God gives me. They just feel like, ah, that's serving other people. I'd rather pursue my own interests. And what I want you to know is that any opportunity to do ministry is an incredible gift that we should embrace and make sure we're taking the opportunity. And when we don't, God will just take it away. Um, people who grow up in a Christian home and who hear truth, and just ignore truth. Sometimes God just says, yeah, you're, you're ignoring it. I'm taking that away. And, and for us, it's like when you sit and you hear God's word and you look at it and you go, I know that's true, but I don't like it and I don't want to believe it. You know, that is a, sometimes God says, all right, I'm not going to speak to you anymore. Like think about Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then what did God do? God hardened his heart. And, and we need to recognize we should never devalue um, God's Word. I think about Proverbs, where God just talks about people that He is speaking to who ignore Him. 
And he just says, uh, turn to my reproof and behold, I'll pour out my spirit on you. This is Proverbs 1.23. And I'll make my words known to you. And then later in the chapter, he says, because you've ignored all my counsel, I will laugh at your calamity. They will call upon me and I will not answer. You know, um, sometimes, uh, in fact, I I think about Eli's sons, right? Uh, Their dad confronts them. And then it says, they didn't listen because God wanted to kill them. And then later he kills them. When, when, when God speaks to you and gives you opportunity and you ignore it and you toss it, that is a terrible thing. And I think about in Hebrews, you know, it talks about Esau, how he just disregarded his birthright and he wanted blessing and how God took that away. And this is the scary thing in Hebrews is that it says that um, God would not give it back to him even though he sought it with tears. And he was crying. And he was saying, God, please, I want it back. And God said, no, you disregarded what I gave you. And so this is just a reminder for us, all of us, that we think about the spiritual opportunity that God gives us and that we fully take advantage of it so we're not like Israel or all the other people. And so tongues is a sign of that. And you want to know what tongues is? Uh, Tongues is a foreign language that you have never learned. That's what tongues is. You speak and people hear in a language that you don't know. One of the things I think about, if tongues was in existence today, we could get rid of uh, Wycliffe Bible translators. We would not need that. We would just take people and send them into the jungle and they would go speak to people in languages that they had never learned and people would be able to hear in their own language. That's one of the things I think about. It says tongues are going to cease. That's just going to come to an end. We think about knowledge. You know, knowledge is going to cease. And we think about how valuable knowledge is. And that's going to cease. We talked about that last week. So let's think about this. What's the time period? And this is one of the things I want to say about tongues as we go to um, chapter or the second point here in verse 9 is that, um, you know, tongues is going to cease and knowledge is going to be done away with when these things happen. And so what is it that is going to happen that are going to make these things go away? And so I, as I think about life, I feel like tongues have ceased. However, it does not give a specific time in this chapter to say tongues are going to cease on this day or at this time period. There's not a verse that says that. And even knowledge and prophecy, being, it says when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. Um, that's heaven. And so we're going to look at that. There's, there are people who their view on this, uh, the perfect comes. So we'll, let's just read verse 9. It says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. So those are two things. You notice that tongues is not mentioned in that. Tongue ceases. But all of a sudden now Paul's talking about um, prophecy and he's talking about knowledge. So there are people who would say, that tongues is different than prophecy and knowledge, and we see that because we know in part and we prophesy in part, and then here he says, when the perfect comes, the partial's going to be done away with. And tongues is set in the middle of that, and it just says they're going to cease on their own. Um, There are others who would say, no, that's just a variety in language, so prophecy, tongues, and knowledge all go together, and they're going to go away when the perfect comes. So those are kind of some, those are two major um, views here. And on the, on the perfect, when the perfect comes, a partial will be done away with. Some views on what the perfect is. 
The perfect is the completed revelation and will of God, the, the completed Bible. So when the Bible is there, the partial will be done away with. Other people will, their, their view is that it's the maturity of the church. When the church is grown and the church is mature, then we won't need these things anymore. And, I, and there are a lot of other views, but I don't take that view. And the reason is how he describes what's going to happen when the perfect comes. And what he says here, we'll just read this. He says, when the perfect comes, a partial will be done away with. And then he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And now here's the perfect, right? He says in verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So the Bible is described as a mirror, right? In James, we're supposed to look at it. We're supposed to see ourselves. It says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Like, are we face to face with Jesus right now? I mean, God's omnipresent, right? He's everywhere. It doesn't matter where you go. Jesus is there. But do we see face to face? No, Jesus is in heaven and we're here. So I, I don't think that that happened. Like, how does the, how's that the completed New Testament? He says, um, uh, he goes on and he says, um, uh, now I know in part, then I will know fully. So Paul's saying right now I know in part and then I'm going to know fully. So hey, the, the, the completed New Testament revelation is more information, but would we say we know fully as we are fully known? No, that sounds to me like heaven where we will know God fully. There will be no limitations. And then he goes on and he says, verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. So I think this is saying that all those gifts are going to cease when we're finally in God's presence. And Paul's point here is that right now, love is important. And when we're in heaven, love is going to be important. Love never ends. And so Paul's just saying, with all these things, as valuable as they are, don't miss out on how God is calling you to love each other. And so that's the point of all these things. And um, so that's why I think it's heaven. And so... Um, if you were to say, let's pick the date that we know that prophecy, tongues, and knowledge are over. <laughs> it's when we're in heaven, right? Like if I'm understanding this correctly. So what does that mean? It does not mean that tongues have not ceased, but also they could have ceased. And so I just think we have to approach that with humility. And I think uh, especially we're going to emphasize this part you know, Paul's analogy here is that we need to view ourselves as children. And I was thinking about the learning process for kids. And this is one of the things I think that really helps us as we work on understanding truth and as we work on interacting with people who disagree with us. We need to actually realize that we're all just kids. When it comes to theology, we're all just children. And we need to think about the knowledge of children. And that should bring 
humility to us. So when I was in seminary, one of the things that would happen is uh, they would have all the seminary graduates get up and speak in chapel and uh, not preach a sermon, but just kind of share their testimony and talk about things. And one of the things that was said over and over by people who are graduating from seminary was, um, I know less now than I knew when I started seminary. And you want to know what that means? That means that they had ideas on election and free will when they entered seminary. And the more they studied election and free will, the more they realized that when they came to seminary, they knew this much, and they thought they knew it all. And now they know this much, but they realize there's way more they don't know yet. And so, uh, but what was funny is the dean of the school got up my year that I was graduating, and he said, I just want you to know that if you, if you get up here and you say that after three or four years of diligent study and learning Greek and Hebrew and being trained in theology by the, some of the smartest people on the planet, if you get up here and you say, I know less today than when I started, we're not giving you a diploma because that means you totally failed. But, you know, the point of that is just to say that, that sometimes we're so sure about what we know and some of that has to do with our ignorance. So in our family, <laughs> we emphasized education. And one of the reasons for that was Michelle and I were, we were not diligent when we were in school. And that made a lot of things in life harder for us. And so we just thought when we raise our kids, we're going to emphasize education. And um, I remember Julianne, when she was a little kid, she was playing with her friend. And uh, she comes in to mom and, and her friend's mom, and she's just crying about how mean her friend was to her. And so they're saying, well, what happened? What did your friend do to you? And she's like, she gave me a B. And she was just crying because they were, they were playing school. And uh, then they grabbed her friend and they said, you know, what's going on? And she goes, I didn't know B was a bad grade. I, I, thought, I, was, I thought I was doing something nice. And it's like, and I, then I thought back, you know, after that, I thought back to, to how we raised our kids. Our kids would come home and from, you know, kindergarten or first grade or second grade, and they'd have a 97 on the test. And I'd say, what went wrong? Like, you know, why'd you miss, why'd you miss that one question? Like, you, you need to know everything. And it's like, I just thought, you know, this is first grade, second grade, third grade. This is easy stuff. You should be getting 100%. You know, one day when you're in calculus, you could miss something. But for right now, like, there's no excuse to miss anything. And so our kids are crying when somebody gives them a B. And I remember one time I'm sitting with John, Julie, Jessica, and she's five years old, and um, we were having a debate about something, and she was disagreeing with me. And I just said, you know, Jessica, you got to think about this. You are five years old. And at the time, actually, I should be able to do this math real quick, but I think I was 32, and I was just saying, Jessica, like, I've been living for 32 years, and it's not that you're not doing well, but you're five and there's a whole bunch of things that you don't know yet. And so when I'm telling you that you're wrong, you should actually listen to me and you should think about what I'm teaching you. I've just, I've had so much more time to learn this. And so uh, the neighbor used to give her a ride to school. And the next day after that conversation, she's sitting in the car with the neighbor and the neighbor comes to us and she goes, you know, on the way to school today, Ju Jessica just said to us, you know, I may, or she said to me, you know, I may not know everything, but I do know an awful lot. And, um, 
And, uh, and then I remember this other story, and I think this is like the perfect illustration, and this is of John. So we go to, we go to uh, the parent-teacher conference, and John's teacher says, you know, we've been working on addition, and, uh, and we just switched to subtraction. And she goes, I'm writing this problem on the board, and I'm just writing 7 minus 2 equals 5. And, and I write this on the board, and John from the back of the room goes, that's wrong! It's nine. And, uh, and she goes, you know, he said it with such confidence that she's like, I took a step back and I looked at the board and I double-checked my work um, because he just said it so confidently. And, uh, and just sitting there, and, you know, John was like so diligent. And he had learned math, you know, seven plus two is nine. And he knew that. He knew it really well. And you know what? He was right. He knew that seven plus two was nine. And he was so confident in that, and he really knew how well he knew this math that he had been learning. And, uh, but the thing is, is that when the teacher transitioned to teaching about subtraction, John did not, like, subtraction was not a concept that was in his mind yet. So when he saw seven and two, and it's like the difference between a plus sign and a minus sign, like, he missed that that, that little symbol was different. And he didn't actually even know the significance of the difference between a plus sign and a minus sign. And so he's looking at that, and he is 100% sure that he's right, when the truth is, he is actually 100% wrong. And he's looking, and, and, and so after that, like, we went home, and we're talking to John, and I said, no, John, you realize that you're in, like, I think he was in first grade. I don't remember where, when they learned that stuff, first, second grade, whatever. He's probably in first grade, but, or second grade. But I just said, John, you are like, you're a little kid, and you're just learning about um, subtraction and addition and all these different things. And so when your teacher's telling you something, you should not be assuming that she's wrong. You should assume that if you think she's wrong, you're the one who's wrong. Like, not only did she pass second grade, but she went on to graduate from elementary school, junior high, and high school, and then she went to something called college where she graduated, and then she got special training in teaching, and the reason that they have her teaching second grade instead of you is that she knows more than you. <laughs> and what Paul is saying here is that we need to understand that we're all children, and when it comes to God's truth, when it comes to what's true, that does not mean that we don't know things. John knew that seven plus two was nine, and he was not wrong. And God intends for us to read the Bible and to know that seven plus two is nine, and to be confident about that, and to not, like, God does not intend for us to be people who say, you know, some people think seven plus two is nine, some people think 7 plus 2 is 12. And you know what? They're all legitimate views. That is not how God intends us to approach life. God intends us to say, no, 7 plus 2 is 9. It is knowable, and we need to hold on to that because it is true. That is how God expects us to approach truth. Not all views are okay. There's one that's okay. But we also realize that sometimes we miss things which can make us super confident about something even though we're wrong. And so we need to bring that humility to everything that we do. And when we are hanging out with somebody else who's wrong about something, 
It should remind us they're wrong, but I could be wrong. And that's one of the things Paul's saying here about spiritual gifts and what everybody thinks they know, that love is the priority because whether you're right or whether you're wrong, how much you know, how much you don't know, the thing that should never change is the love that we have for each other. And the other thing is we recognize that there is going to be a day where we fully know everything. Like right now we know in part, but that's going to end. We're eventually going to know everything. We're not going to need prophecy. We're not going to need inspiration because we're going to be with God. And we're not going to need help knowing things. We're going to already know things. And so that, one of the things I think is super important is for us to think about what are the things about heaven that are true and how should those inform the way we think about each other and the way we treat each other. And I was thinking about uh, Titus 2.13, which just says, uh, Paul's just saying to Titus that he's waiting for his, ble- our, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our, the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus. Like we are waiting for the return of Jesus, and that should inform how we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, I think about, um, you know, uh, I think about 2 Peter, the whole of chapter 3. Um, where it just says that God's not slow, but He's patient, wishing that none would perish. And as we think about heaven and as we think about eternity, um, and we think about the way that God is going to burn up the world and how there's a time limit on people coming to know the Lord. People have this life. And, and so there's an individual time limit for everybody, right? So um, I hope we all make it to the park and have a wonderful, fun day. But the reality is none of us knows for sure we'll live to get to the park. Um, There's a time limit for every single one of us, and none of us knows when that time limit is. But there's also a time limit for the entire world, and none of us knows when that time limit is. And this is what Peter says. He says, since all these things are to be dissolved, he's talking about the world being destroyed in intense heat. He says, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Like that puts life in perspective, that we live holy, godly lives, because nothing in this life matters. You know, you think about all the people that are so focused on materialism, and they want to be rich, and they want to have this, and they want to take this vacation, and they want to do this, faint, this fun thing, and it's like all the material things in life drive them. And God says, no. When you think about heaven, you start to realize what actually really matters, and that's holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming, the coming day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So that ought to give us like a sense of urgency to reach the lost. Um, and I, I just think about that was what happened to the Apostle John. When you think about him, the whole book of Revelation happens, like this description of really terrible things. And, and at the very end, the book ends. The second to last verse in, um, in the book of Revelation is John, and he just says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. That's Jesus. He says, I'm coming soon. And John just goes, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Man, he just wants Jesus to come back. And if we have that kind of an attitude and that kind of a perspective, that is going to drive us um, to be loving toward each other.
And I just want to end um, with this, this third concept, this third thing here. Uh, you know, we need to develop and express the perfect qualities for an imperfect world. So we live in an imperfect world. And you want to know what the perfect qualities are for that? It's faith, hope, and love. Let me just briefly say what those are. It says, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide. And we're living in those things. Those are present, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So what is faith? You know, faith is, um, the Bible defines it. Isn't that nice when the Bible defines something? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So you're going to see this connection between faith and hope. Those are two of the things that we're going to look at. But faith is when we believe God. We know who He is, we believe Him, and we trust Him. And faith is what it takes for salvation. Uh, it's we, we realize, I am not good enough. I need to actually trust the sacrifice that Jesus made. I, I will never deserve heaven, but Jesus deserved it for me. And so faith is believing and trusting in Jesus, but faith is also something we need to live life. Faith is trusting what God says about sin, trusting what God says about the future, trusting what God says is important in life. That's faith. We live a whole life. We're saved by faith, but we live a whole life of faith. Um, so that's faith. Hope. Hope is not, I really wish this would happen. I hope I win the lottery. I hope everybody I meet will like me. I hope I always make the right, I will always make all the right decisions. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is based on faith. We trust God, we believe God, and we have a hope, something that we know is going to happen something that we are confident is going to happen. It is our hope. It's the thing that we trust. It's something we know is going to happen in the future. It's not something we wonder if it will happen. It is something we know will happen. You know, there is nothing worse than when people lose hope. You ever think about how valuable that is? And, and I would just say that as the body of Christ... And, and you as an individual, it is your job to have hope, and it is your job to encourage and build hope in the lives of the people that God has put around you. We should not be a discouragement. We have hope as Christians. And, you know, hope happens in your emotions when you know good things are coming, even in the face of bad things. I was thinking about that. Have you ever thought about people who have fought for terrible surgeries? So my dad, um, he had like these heart attacks and he had these heart issues in his life and he was in like just really bad shape where he couldn't, he was a really healthy man but got to the place that he couldn't do anything. In fact, he couldn't walk from our living room to the trash can out on the street without having chest pain. My dad was a heart cripple. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's somebody whose heart's so bad they can't do anything. And he went to the doctor and they said, yeah, you're not a candidate for bypass surgery. Um, so you're just going to have to live like this. And I'm thinking, or die like this. And uh, the guy couldn't do anything. And, and I remember us praying and hoping for bypass surgery. Anybody ever had bypass surgery? Well, you don't have to raise your hand. I know that's probably a HIPAA violation. <laughs> um, anybody ever watch bypass surgery? Man, that's a nightmare. They saw your sternum in half. 
They like open you up. They take veins out of your legs and sew them into you. Like it's terrible. And I remember this terrible thing. And in our family, we're praying that he could find a doctor who will say he's a candidate for bypass surgery and give him, who wants something terrible? You know what? We had hope that if he had that surgery, he would get better. And so he did go to the hospital. He did get bypass surgery and his life was revolutionized. And it was hope that a bad, and and I just want you to know that in your life, when you face bad things, you will have joy in them when you have hope that God is working good things in your life. I want to give you a couple of verses as we close here that will remind you of this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. That just says if you're a Christian, God's going to use every bad thing in your life for good. You have hope. There is never a reason for a Christian not to have hope. Romans 8, 38, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So no Christian is without hope. And we need to be one of the main things that God intends for you and me to be doing in our life is helping the people around us understand where true, true hope lies. We're trying to help unbelievers put their hope in Christ. And we are trying to help believers who are believing the lies of Satan, who are thinking that there's no hope, who look at other people and say, there's no hope for you, uh, I can't change, or you can't change. You know, uh, people who struggle in marriages, you ever know somebody who's given up hope in marriage because they're struggling? Man, for Christians, <laughs> there's always hope in marriage. Um, and There's always hope in everything when you're a believer. And even when things go south in your life, there is always hope for you. And our job as Christians is to have hope and to help the people around us have hope. So we, should need, we need faith and we need hope. Like these, that, this is where we live as Christians. But we don't forget love. That's the most important thing. And let me just close with this verse. Hebrews 10, 22 to 25. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with heart, our hearts sprinkled clean. That's what Jesus did for us spiritually. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. If we ever doubt God's promises, we remember that God always tells the truth. And then um, what's our response to that? Uh, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And so that's what we're supposed to be doing, encouraging us each other to love each other and to live righteous lives, not neglecting meeting together. (laughs) This is supposed to happen at church. We're supposed to come to church. Um, But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It is what we understand about heaven that helps us live life correctly now. So, We'll dig more into tongues, but if you really understand all this right, you won't be offended no matter what I say. So let me pray for us. God, thank you for giving us your word, and God, I pray that you would help us to be 
living examples of your love for us. God, I thank you that we have faith, and I pray that you would help us to be people that are communicating the good news of the gospel and the importance of faith in you. And God, I pray that you would help us to be people who have hope and who are encouraging other people to be hopeful. And most of all, Lord, that we would love other people with the love that you have given us in your name. Amen.